Today's reading is from Hebrews chapter 3, and we're starting halfway through verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Um, for some reason, I'm sitting here uh, thinking about uh, brothers and sisters who can't be here, uh, who want to be here, who should be here, but aren't able to. Um, you're on our hearts. Uh, I know you're loved and you're missed, so um, yeah. Um, if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to Hebrews 3. Um, we're just going to jump straight in today. Uh, we have a lot to get through. Uh, we're going to finish off chapter 3 this morning. Um, chapter 3, really the entire book of Hebrews is... It's all about this essential quality of, of real, genuine followers of Jesus. And that essential quality of true believers of Jesus is faithfulness. Um, the overall theme, uh, we said this every week, uh, of Hebrews is that Jesus is, say it with me, better. Okay, Jesus is better. He is superior. He's more glorious. Uh, he's more beautiful. He's more joy-giving. He's more satisfying than anything, anyone, anything in this world. Um, but when we hear that message, alongside that message should come our response. Um, so if you believe that Jesus truly is better, then that's brilliant. Uh, but the author in chapter 3 is going to ask, where's the proof? Where, where's the evidence of this great salvation in your life? Um, chapter 3 is telling us, if you are a holy brother or sister, if you, ha- if you are indeed a participant in this heavenly calling, there will be evidence of that in your life, and the evidence is faithfulness to Jesus to the end. Um, faithfulness is what chapter 3 is about. Um, the, the whole chapter, if you kind of step back, gives us a positive example of faithfulness and a negative example. We looked last week at the positive one in verses 1 to 6. Um, Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, 
who is is faithful to him who appointed him, that's the Father, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. And then today we'll look at, from verse 7, uh, the writer moves from that positive example of Moses and Jesus' faithfulness uh, to the negative example of those uh, unfaithful wanderers in the desert, in the wilderness. And before we really dig into that text, I want to take a minute and press in on the end of of verse 6, where we, where we ended last week. Let me read that, that second part of verse 6 again. Um, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are his house, if we hold fast. So remember we, we said his house, he's referring to, to God's people. So the, the people of God, these, these holy brothers and sisters participants in the heavenly calling. And verse 6, he's, he's speaking specifically of the new people of God, the new covenant people of God, and those who claim to be followers of Jesus, which should include us here. He says, we are that house. We are that people of God if we hold fast our confidence and our hope in Jesus. It's really important to understand what that means uh, it's really important to understand what that doesn't mean. So what he, notice what he does not say here. He does not say we will be God's house if we hold fast our hope. Okay, he's not saying if we hold fast our confidence and our hope in Jesus, then we will be God's house. It's not what he says. He, he, he says we are God's house. So if, you're, if you have that scripture reading, that scripture journal, kind of circle we are. We are God's house today if we go on holding fast to our hope. So he's, he's talking about that proof in your life, that evidence. He's saying that the holding fast to our hope is the proof, it's the evidence, it's the verification that we have become and we are now God's house. Look, go down to verse 14. In verse 14, he repeats exactly the same thing again. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. Notice the, 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 the tense there. It's, it's past tense. We have become. Um, the, the, a, a literal rend, uh, rendering of that text is we have become participants of, in Christ. We have become sharers in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So again, what does he, do, what does he not say? He doesn't say we will become participants of Christ in the future if we hold fast our assurance. He says the the exact opposite, actually. He says that that we have become partakers in the past if today and in the future we continue on hoping. We, we, We persevere to the end. In other words, holding fast to our assurance to the end, it verifies it, it's the, the evidence that, that something real and lasting happened to us. So it, it, he's not talking about, it's a kind of a cause and effect thing here. The, the holding fast isn't the reason you will be God's house. It's the evidence that you are God's house. Does that make sense? So what can we conclude then if we do not hold fast our hope and our confidence? What does, that, what does that mean? Um, here's, here's what the answer is not. The answer is not, if you do not hold fast our hope and our assurance, then you cease to be a partaker of Christ. 
It's not what he says at all. The text says, if you don't hold fast to your hope and assurance to the end, then you have not become a partaker of Christ. It's evidence that, that it's, this something real and lasting didn't actually happen. He's saying that, that persevering in faith and hope and confidence is the proof. It's, it's the evidence that you really are a partaker in Jesus, that you really are part of his house. To put it really simply, this text doesn't say that you can lose your salvation, which is really good news. He's not saying that you can lose your salvation if you fail to persevere to the end. It's, he's saying that if you fail to persevere to the end, that you never did partake in Christ. The book it teaches eternal security. It teaches that those who put their faith in Jesus will persevere to the end, that they will continue in hope and confidence in Christ because they are a part of God's house, because God is faithful to his house. That's that, that heir, that son, will provide for his house and, and protect his house and care for his house. It's an amazing truth, and it should do two things for you. Firstly, it should fill you with hope. Um, it should be good news that if you are in Christ, if you are a participant, a genuine partaker in this heavenly calling, you will persevere to the end. He is faithful to his household. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the end in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. It should bring you with, fill you with hope. But at the same time, it should cause every single person in this room today to examine themselves. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself, he says. Or Peter in 2 Peter, 2, uh, 2 Peter 1, 10 to 11, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So all of those, those verses, the text today says the same thing. Examine yourself. Test yourself. Dilig diligently confirm that calling. Pay much closer attention. Make sure that your faith is genuine. Hebrews 3 is telling us how we do that. How do you actually make sure that your faith is genuine? You do that by answering that question I asked last week. What are you hoping in? What are you holding fast to? Are you hoping in Jesus? Is Jesus your, your confidence? Is Jesus who you, who you boast in? Are you, is your mind set on heavenly things where Jesus is? The answer to those questions will tell you whether you are a partaker in Jesus. Those who persevere in faith and hope and boasting in Jesus to the end are genuine partakers of Christ, the genuine household of Christ. There's a sobering message in, in chapter 3, though. This message that there may be some of you in the room today who think you are part of God's house, but you're actually not. And you may be thinking, that's pretty harsh to say, John. Um, but is it? 
Wouldn't it be much easier to let you continue on thinking that you're part of the house when you're not? The opposite of love is actually indifference. And isn't it a much more loving thing to do to do what the author is doing for us, which is to urgently and lovingly call these so-called brothers to pay much closer attention, to take care, to consider Jesus, to fix their eyes, their gaze on Jesus, to examine themselves, to test themselves. Um, So let's do that. He's calling us to faithfulness. He gives us this positive example of Moses and Jesus in verses 1 to 6. And in verse 7, he gives this negative example of faithfulness by looking at the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness. Why does he use them as an example? Um, I think most of the time when we think about our salvation and what God has done through Christ to reconcile us to himself, our mind goes and we, we talk about our personal faith in Jesus, and repentance of sin, uh, being forgiven, being a child of God. Those are all great things. They're, you're right. That's, that's true. Um, but when you read the New Testament, you actually get a much grander, a much more expansive view of salvation. Um, in fact, the Bible tells us that what God has done for us in Jesus is nothing short of a second exodus, um, which is pretty expansive, pretty grand. Um, so the New Testament writers, over and over again, they point us back. They say, look back to the people of Israel, to, to their exodus out of Egypt and that story. Because that, that, that helps us understand and compare and contrast and learn about this second, better, second exodus in Jesus. So um, this is really interesting. In Luke 9, um, when Luke's writing about the transfiguration, he says Jesus was talking to Elijah and Moses. They uh, kind of appeared in glory and spoke. They, what they, were, they were having a conversation. They spoke about his, his departure that was about to take place in Jerusalem, his death that was about to take place in Jerusalem. They're having a conversation about the cross. And the word that he uses for departure is literally exodus. So the, Jesus, the death of Christ is itself called an exodus. And their story is meant to be a foreshadowing of ours. So just quickly... Um, Let me just remind you of their story. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were physically enslaved to Pharaoh. Uh, God worked these miracles in the form of ten plagues to bring about their deliverance from bondage. God provided this way. He provided, uh, take a sacrificial lamb, one that is spotless, one that is uh, without kind of any blame, and and apply the, the blood of that innocent Uh, sacrificial lamb to the doorposts and then what God will pass over your sins when he sees that blood. Um, Moses led the people into the wilderness. They passed through the Red Sea. Uh, He led them to that holy mountain where they received God's law. While they wandered the wilderness, God provided for them manna that fell from from heaven to eat, water that flowed from a rock to drink. Um, All this, they, they were journeying to the promised land where they would enter rest, we're told. And all of that story is a foreshadow uh, of an even greater and more important exodus, uh, namely our exodus, our deliverance out of bondage and slavery to sin. So th- th- they're meant to kind of mirror each other. They're, they're like an, uh, it's like an antitype of the other. So they were in physical bondage. We were in spiritual bondage. God worked uh, miracles in ten plagues. He worked miracles and wonders in the ministry of Jesus. 
uh, the blood of the sacrificial lamb that God, that led God to pass over their sins. Well, Jesus is our Passover lamb who's, when his shed blood is applied to our hearts in faith, he passes over, he spares us from the penalty of death. And our baptism in Christ is this kind of antitype of their passage through the Red Sea. Uh, Jesus is the antitype or the, the fulfillment of Moses. He's this, he's this better Moses. He, he provides for us his law and his commandments under the new covenant to guide and to shape our behavior. Um, just as God pro- provided Israel with manna from heaven, we're told in John 6 that Jesus himself is the true manna that doesn't sustain us merely physically, but, but spiritually. With a, he gives us eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, we read that the rock from which the people of Israel drank life-giving waters was none other than Christ himself. So Christ is the, the, the manna. He's, the, he's the, the living water. He's the rock. And the land of Canaan, that promised land that they were journeying to, to enter into rest, that's this, this prophetic preview of the spiritual rest that, that we now experience, we receive through faith in Christ. It's that rest, that, that, that promised land that we, were, that we are journeying to, that we will experience forever when we dwell with God in the new earth when Christ returns. See how that mirrors our story? That's why, read the Old Testament, it's really important. Um, it's why the, he, the writer of Hebrews is pointing us back, pointing us to that story because it foreshadows ours because we learn from that story. And he's warning, he's using that to, to warn his audience against giving up faith and hope, to warn them from not making it to the end. He wants us to learn from their mistakes. Um, and he, he, he's quoting Psalm 95 in those uh, verses 7 to 11. Read with me that, those verses again. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, stop there for a minute. Um, I don't know if you picked up on this yet. Um, he's, so he's quoting the Old Testament scripture, and he's saying, this is the Holy Spirit speaking. Um, he's done this three times so far in these, three letter, in these three cha- first three chapters. He's quoted uh, scripture as if it's coming from the mouth of the Father in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he's quoted it as if Jesus is speaking, and here he's saying, now this is the Holy Spirit speaking. So he believes Scripture is God-breathed, that it was, it's, it's God speaking. So that's just a wee tangent. That's why I encourage you to read your, your Bibles in that way as well. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's him pointing back. Don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion on the day of the testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Um, The people of Israel saw God do unbelievable things, didn't they? Like those 10 plagues would be enough to blow your mind. But then they saw the sea split into two and they walked through it to the other side. They saw that the, the, the army chasing them swallowed up by that sea once they got to the other side. They saw the pillar of cloud guide them by day. The pillar of fire guide them by night. They ate manna that fell from heaven 
They drank water from a rock. They, they audibly heard the voice of God from that holy mountain and still constantly moaned and complained. And most scholars agree that the author of Psalm 95 is referring to Numbers 11 and 12. So in Numbers 11 and 12, the people of Israel finally reached the border of Canaan, the, 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 this promised land that they've been journeying towards for 40 years. And before they go in, Moses sends in those 12 spies, and 10 of them come back with an unfavorable report. And we see the people revolt against Moses and Aaron. They demand new leaders who will take them back to Egypt. Unbelievable. They're, they're there. And they're like, let's go back. And in verse 10, says they, they provoked God. That, that means they, they, they angered him. Like, like any good parent, he's not indifferent to them. They put him to the test. Verse 16 says they rebelled. Verse 18, they, diso- they were disobedient. Verse 19, they were guilty of unbelief. The point the writer of Hebrews is making is their story teaches us that we can experience the goodness of God. You can experience the power of God. You can experience the care of God and still not be a genuine participant of Jesus. It was, it was so for them. They experienced all of that. Verse 9 says, They saw my works for 40 years. And yet, verse 10 says, They go astray in their heart. They don't know my ways. Verse 11, They shall not enter my rest. And it reminds me of what Jesus said in the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We not cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. You never really knew me. You experienced some mighty things. You're part of some, some incredible things, some spectacular things, but we don't know each other, and therefore you shall not enter my rest. It's sobering, isn't it? should be. And the author is saying, don't be like those people. Don't be like those people who saw his works for 40 years, who heard God's voice, who experienced his grace and his goodness. And they still hardened their hearts. They still moaned. They still murmured. And they provoked him. They went astray in their hearts and disbelieved. Don't be like them because they didn't persevere to the end. He's pleading with them. So in verse 12, he gives them this, another exhortation. He says, take care, brothers, sisters, Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So take care, brothers and sisters. Sounds like chapter 2, verse 1, doesn't it? We must pay much closer attention to what you heard, lest you drift away. Take care, lest there be in any any of you an, an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. At that 
that Greek word for fall away, it means to leave, to, to withdraw, to abandon. He's saying, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to pack it all in, to, to leave, to abandon God, to, to head back to Egypt. And again, the reason he gives for this happening is because you never became a partaker of Jesus. It's Jesus saying, I never knew you. Notice in Matthew 7, he doesn't say, I knew you and then I stopped knowing you. He says, I never knew you. You, 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 you never became mine. So he says, take care, brothers, lest you drift away, lest you fall away like they did. So what do we do? <laughs> what, 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 is, what is the answer? What's, what do we do in order not to be like those desert wanderers who didn't persevere, who, who, who did go astray in their hearts? I think he gives two answers. Uh, one of them in verse 12 we've looked at, it's this kind of general one, and then he gets really specific in verse 13. But that first one, in, in uh, general one in verse 12, says, take care. It's really important. That, that it's a Greek word that means to look out, beware, watch out, pay attention. I think, I think that kind of flies in the face of the attitude of that old, hey, once saved, always saved mantra. And I do believe that. I think this, this scripture teaches that. Again, this text doesn't say that you can, you can lose your salvation because of disobedience. Absolutely not. But we all do have those friends and family members that started out well. They said, well, well, I said that prayer. I was baptized. I, maybe I'm, I still maybe even come around often, so I'm good, right? That's actually, that, that's the opposite attitude that Jesus and the New Testament writers say we have to have as followers of Jesus. Read the New Testament and you see the way to glory for Jesus followers is its earnestness. It's, it's self-assessment. It's diligence. It's with, with vigilance. Luke 13, 24, Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. There's, there's work to be done. There's striving. It's by grace you are saved, but there's, there's diligence involved. And Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians, examine yourself. Test yourself. 2 Peter 1, confirm, be more diligent to confirm your calling. 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9, be sober-minded, be watchful, he says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith. You can't coast to heaven. You can't drift. That's not the way of Jesus. John Piper says the truth is, is not that Christians don't have to be vigilant and watchful over their hearts. The truth is you can know you're a Christian if you are vigilant. The truth is not that you don't have to be vigilant because you said that prayer, because you, you come around, because you, you read your Bible. The truth is that you can know you're a Christian if you are vigilant. The evidence of, 
that you are born again is there is there's that fight. There's, there's that, there's that uh, paying careful attention. It's that considering Jesus. You're not cavalier. You're not careless. You're not drifting. That's the, the general answer in verse 12. Take care. Be vigilant. Be watchful, brothers and sisters. And then he gets ex- really specific in verse 13. Take care lest there be in in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's saying perseverance is a community project. you, You cannot make it on your own. Look, look around the room. Everybody, look around the room. You're not doing it. Look around. I know it's awkward. You need these people in order to persevere to the end. God has ordained these brothers and sisters around you to be in your life to help you make it to the end. You need them to point you to Jesus. You need them to remind you that Jesus is better. You need them to exhort you daily. You need that, but you also need to be that. Are you doing this for one another? Or is this a kind of week-to-week thing? See you next Sunday. You will not make it if that's the case. The reason is, listen to me, this, will, this is what will happen to you. This is what's going to happen to you today. Something will come into your life. And maybe you're going to flick on the TV or you're going to scroll through your phone. You're going to be on a walk. Something. And something will come into your mind and this subtle, deceptive statement will be, this is better than Jesus. This is going to satisfy you. This is going to give you a taste of joy. This is deserving of your worship. That will happen to you today. It will happen to you tomorrow. It's going to happen to you the day after that. Which is why the author says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Exhort one another. That word exhort means to encourage, to urge, to call, to invite, to beg, to plead. In all of those ways, he's saying remind each other that that thing you are being tempted with, that that thing that is trying to deceive you into believing that it is better than Jesus, it's not true. Beg with, with, with one another. Plead with one another to believe that Jesus is better. That he is where your real satisfaction and joy is found. Don't be deceived by that sin. Don't let it slowly, day by day, begin to harden your heart. To begin to pull your gaze and your attention away from Jesus. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, again, for we have come to share in Christ 
if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then verse 11, he repeats Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as they did. He says, today. All through the New Testament, the writers put this huge emphasis on today, on on now. For those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus, maybe you've never professed Jesus to be Lord. Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you have, but it was half-hearted. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, we appeal to you not to receive this grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable, favorable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I have, I have helped you. Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, man, let today be that day. Let now be that day where you do that. But also, and equally importantly, for those of you who, who do follow Jesus, who do profess him to be Lord, today is for you too. To let today be the day where you examine your heart, where you test your, examine your faithfulness. Let today be the day where you exhort your brother or sister. Today has to be the day that you consider him. Today has to be the day where you fix your gaze on him. Might not be a tomorrow. It's about today. There's nothing more important today in your life than this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's, that's the danger. The danger is not that, hey, maybe you're going to stop hearing his voice. The danger is you do hear his voice, but you reject it. The danger is hearing his voice, but you've drifted away. You've abandoned that. You, you, you've neglected that great salvation and live in unbelief and therefore unable to enter his rest. So he's saying, take care, brothers and sisters. Exhort one another daily. Perseverance is a community project. Um, as we draw to a close, um, I want to give you kind of one word of warning, encouragement, and then I also want to give you a, a real bit of practical advice for what this looks like. Um, firstly, the warning uh, or slash encouragement. Some of, when you, some of you, when you read or hear verse 6 and verse 14, those verses about the proof, that the evidence that you have become a partaker of Jesus, the evidence that, that you will enter into his rest is that you are holding fast to the end. A lot of you, when you hear that, your mind immediately goes to, I need to get busy. <laughs> I, 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 need to, I need to straighten up. I need to do more. I need to get my obedience in order. My warning is to be careful to, not to give in to legalism. <laughs> like, obedience is... is Obedience is necessary. Jesus does want your obedience, but what he wants really is your heart. He's, he's after your heart. Look how many times he says heart in verses 8 and verse 10 and verse 12 and verse 15. It's your affections he's after. 
The Sermon on the Mount is all about true followers of Jesus are those who don't just have this outward obedience, but a deeper righteousness of the heart. It's not just about having this cup that's clean on the, outs- on the outside. It's, it's a cleanliness on the inside. Jesus is after your heart. Jesus wants you to abide with him. Jesus wants you to draw near to him. Jesus is after you to be a faithful companion with him. And faithfulness, it's something that is cultivated. It's something that is nurtured. It's something that happens by learning it slowly, over time, takes patience. This kind of flies in the face of our cultural context, doesn't it? Our culture, like we've said, is all signs, no destination. It's, it's fast-paced. It's sound bites. It's, it's, uh, uh, we want new and better products and experiences. We want instant access. We want no buffering. We want instant information and opportunities and gratification. We're sprinting from one life experience to the next. But the book of Hebrews, on the other hand, places an emphasis on long distance, a well-paced faith steadfastness and endurance over a long period of time, faithfulness in mundane experiences, sometimes without instant gratification. It's about hoping. It's about repetition. It's about pattern. I love this quote. I think it's on the screen. It's a quote by Calvin Miller. He said, one barrier to full intimacy with the Savior is hurriedness. Intimacy may not be rushed. To meet with the Son of God takes time. We cannot dash into his presence and choke down spiritual inwardness before we hurry on to our one o'clock appointment. Inwardness is time-consuming, open only to minds willing to sample spirituality in small bites, savoring each one. Intimacy with Christ comes from entering his presence with inner peace rather than bursting into his presence from the hassles of life. A relaxed contemplation of the indwelling Christ allows for an inner communion impossible to achieve while oppressed by busyness and care. Listen to this. Holy living is not abrupt living. No one who, hurry, no one who hurries into the presence of God is content to remain for long. Those who hurry in, hurry out. My point is, verse 6 and verse 14, don't let that lead you to anxiety to perform. Instead, learn slowly and quietly to fix your gaze on Jesus every day. Practice being in his presence, abiding with him. He will abide with you. I promise you that. Secondly, and I'm finished here, when, when exhorting one another, what does that look like? I want to give you a bit of practical advice. When you're exhorting one another, do so with intentionality. And so in your missional communities, in your core groups, just in your one-on-one conversations with one another, when you're, when you're, ha- when you're engaging with people, Know in your mind that the sin in their life is trying to deceive them into thinking that something else is better than Jesus. That's what's going on in all of your lives and in my life. 
There's sin that's trying to deceive us into thinking that something else is better, something else is more satisfying than Jesus. And when you have that in your mind, ask better questions. So, so I, I don't think it's enough to be like, hey, how's your walk with Jesus going? It's a good place to start. We want to have those conversations, but I just want to give you a few examples of questions to ask to help us kind of think in this way. They're on the screen as well. Stole these from Sam, Sam Storms. Uh, he says, uh, as, these are questions you're going to ask people. As you contemplate your immediate future, what do you most want to see happen? What do you most fear or worry about losing? If you could change one thing about yourself right now, what would it be? I'm not asking what you think you ought to change or what you think the Bible or some other individual says you should change. In complete honesty, what do you wish could change, even if it's not the most spiritual thing in the world, and why? When you are depressed or bitter or angry or frustrated, to what or to whom do you typically turn first to comfort? What experience in life makes you feel most significant? Or again, when do you feel valuable and life seems meaningful? Who is there in your life that you find yourself incapable or unwilling to forgive? What did they do? What prevents you from forgiving them according to scriptural guidelines? What doctrinal truth in scripture do you struggle most to believe? In what ways does your doubt regarding this biblical truth affect your life and your relationship with God? What or who in your life is the greatest obstacle to spiritual growth and your passionate pursuit of God? What is, the greatest, uh, what is the greatest obstacle in your life to the pursuit of that ministry or mission to which you believe God has called you? What are the most severe and appealing temptations to sin that you currently encounter? How are you fighting to resist them and to whom are you accountable in that process? When was the last time someone asked you those kinds of questions? When was the last time you asked someone that kind of question? Or is it just, how you doing? It's those kind of questions, what they do is they get to the root of your hope. What, what are you hoping in? What is your confidence in? What are you holding fast to? There's absolutely nothing more important than the answers to those questions. Exhort one another, brothers and sisters. Push each other to take care of your hearts. If you're able, let's stand. Jesus, we thank you that you are a sympathetic high priest and that you know our struggles. You know our weaknesses. You know how hard this road to glory can be. You know those things. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to us and 
far greater ways than we are faithful to you. We thank you that our entrance into glory doesn't have to do with how good we are. It all has to do with how good you are, what you've accomplished for us. We thank you for the grace in our life. We thank you for the mercy that we live in even today. These walls that aren't crumbling down on us, the air that we breathe, we thank you for that, Lord. Jesus, we want to be uh, good followers of you. We want to be uh, faithful sons and daughters of the Father. We ask you to help us to persevere. You began a good work in us. You are faithful to complete it. We want to do our part of taking care of diligently considering you, fixing our eyes on you, helping each other, pushing each other towards you. For, your jo- for our joy, Lord, and for your glory, help us to see the goodness in this, the joy that you give when we are abiding in you, we are conforming to you, when we are obedient to you. Lord, spark a fire in us to, to take these things seriously. Pray for, for those who are struggling this morning, Lord. I pray for those who are hurting. Pray for those who are limping by. Lord, give them strength. Give them a brother or a sister to, to hold them up. We thank you for your church, Lord. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.